Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 145. Psalm 145, hear now the word of our God. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Today as we turn to the the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, we We come to Thy Kingdom Come, which is a a fitting theme for Easter Sunday because Easter Sunday is where the Kingdom of God came in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the second petition, which is Thy Kingdom Come, we acknowledge ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. When you think about Thy Kingdom Come, we pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. How often do you pray against Satan's kingdom? It's something we should do. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We should also be praying that the gospel would flourish and grow. Our larger catechism says that we should pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. That the church would be purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. That the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins. And the confirming, comforting and building up of those that are already converted. And we should pray that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever. And that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. In a sense, when you pray, thy kingdom come, 
you're praying for everything. There is not a single thing in all of creation that is outside the scope of Christ's kingdom. So when you pray, Thy kingdom come, you are praying for everything, anything you can think of. You should be praying, Thy kingdom come in this as in everything else. So there's a way in which everything we pray for is should be subsumed in the petition, Thy kingdom come in this area, in my life, in everything around me. We pray that Christ would rule in our hearts, here and now. Don't wait, Lord. Please don't wait. And please hasten. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hear now the word of our God from Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, what what are we praying for? Jesus had taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples knew that the resurrection was all about the coming of the kingdom. And so they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We've been praying for God's kingdom to come for a couple years now. Is it time yet? Isn't that so often the way we are? We pray for something for a few weeks, a few months, maybe a few years. If God doesn't do it, well... But how does Jesus answer? They're asking, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says, in effect, you're not quite getting what the kingdom is all about. You're misunderstanding something. You think the coming of the kingdom will result in the son of David sitting on the throne of Israel. And sort of, (laughs) yes, but not the way you're thinking. I mean, when we went through the Nicene Creed, we talked about this. Think about what would have happened if Jesus had been raised from the dead and then sat down on a throne in Jerusalem. Now, I mean, given the fact that Jesus 
is raised, he's never more to die again, that means that now, 2,000 years later, King Jesus would be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit would never have been poured out because that could only happen if he ascended to the Father. (laughs) So that means that the kingdom of God would be established in Israel and anybody who got to see Jesus would see the Son of God. That would be pretty amazing. I mean, but quite frankly, um, if if you think about what would it look like for there to be an sort of immortal king living on earth for 2,000 years? Actually, most of you have probably seen that movie. All the superheroes are premised on this sort of thing, whether it's whether you're going with Superman or Thor or something. Sort of, that's, which quite frankly is very much like the pagan gods of the ancient world when you think about Zeus and Apollo and all those. That's sort of, that's the, that's paganism. And think about how well that works, whether in the ancient world with all the Greek gods, or in the modern world with all the superheroes. It doesn't usually go very well. I mean, I think about the modern world. Hey, maybe, you know, could a nuclear bomb take him out? Let's try it. That's what we'd be dealing with. But the fundamental problem is that if Jesus stays on the earth, then he never sits down at the right hand of the Father. Actually, he never really sits down on the throne of David because the throne of David was always pointing to the right hand of the Father. Because King Jesus sitting on the throne in Jerusalem is not nearly as great a thing as when he says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. So when they ask him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, you're missing the point. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I mean, when you think about, when you think about Israel's track record on trying to establish the kingdom of God, when you think about humanity's track record, uh, think about, what, what was World War I? The war to end all wars. And, you know, after World War II, the, the United Nations will guarantee that ne- war will never happen again. Um, well, humanity does a very bad job of trying to establish the kingdom of God. Only God can save. Only when God acts in history does salvation come to his people. But Jesus is also very clear that he is restoring the kingdom of God. But Jesus is teaching them that the kingdom comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is one with the Father and the Son Just as Jesus had taught in John's Gospel that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, so also the Holy Spirit is in the Father and the Son. The three persons of the Trinity all mutually indwell one another. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, it's the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made when he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And in the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see the coming of King Jesus to dwell with us. And so, yes, in a sense, Jesus is now restoring the kingdom to Israel because the kingdom of Israel was itself a picture of the kingdom of God. The throne of David was a picture of the heavenly throne. God's purpose in history was that 
a man would sit at God's right hand, one who shares our humanity, one who has taken our weakness and shared our weakness and frailty, now sits at the right hand of the Father. As I sat at baby Gilbert's bedside last night, yes, one who shares our frailty and weakness, he came as a little baby. And he's now sitting at the right hand of God. The kingdom of God has indeed begun in Jesus. Indeed, I am doing right now what Jesus told his disciples to do. You shall be my witnesses. Yeah, the book of Acts tells the story of how the apostles were those witnesses. In Jerusalem, chapters 2 through 7. In Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. And then the story continues. Because the one holy Catholic and apostolic church continues to proclaim that same message. What message? Christ is risen. Amen. And because Christ is risen from the dead, because the eternal Son of God has taken our flesh and joined Himself to our humanity, therefore one who is true God and true man sits at the right hand of the Father. The King is sitting at the right hand of God. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus has restored the kingdom in precisely the way that, as we'll, as we'll see from Psalm 145, in precisely the way that the Old Testament had taught. It's just many people had misunderstood what the Old Testament was saying. And so we pray for the coming of his kingdom. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it nicely when it asks, what is the second petition in the Lord's Prayer? It's, Thy kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. I've been encouraging us to, to use the Psalms and other biblical prayers as we learn how to pray better. And if you want to pray, Thy kingdom come, praying Psalm 145 is a good place to start. If you want to turn back over there, Psalm 145 is, is said to be a, a song of praise of David. And when we hear the, the, when, when the Psalms used of David, it might mean by David, but it can also mean for David, about David. But the point of the of David is that you're supposed to hear this Psalm in the voice of David. And particularly, Psalm 145 is speaking of God's kingdom. Three times in verses 11 to 13, the kingdom of God is mentioned. And indeed, in, in verse 1, I will extol, extol you, my God and King. But what does Psalm 145 teach us about what it means to pray, Thy kingdom come? Last week we looked at Psalm 111 and we, and we saw how what God has done in history shows us who God is and 
what God calls us to do and to be. In the same way, Psalm 145 also begins with the the holiness of God's name. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And in verse 3, David says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And then in verses 4 to 7, David says that not only will he praise the Lord, but also future generations will praise the Lord. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Sometimes when we're alone, we we pray by ourselves. But there's another sense in which we never really pray alone. We always pray our Father. We are coming to God even if we're by ourselves. We are coming to the God who is our Father in Jesus Christ. And how should one generation commend God's works to another? Notice how he, how he does this in verses 5 to 7. The, the I is, 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 is one generation. The they is the next. So on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They, the next generation, shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And listen to the ways in which David attests to the works of God. He speaks of your works, your mighty acts, the glorious splendor of your majesty, your wondrous works, the might of your awesome deeds, your greatness, the fame of your abundant goodness, your righteousness. The vocabulary of praise is useful here. We all have habits and tendencies to fall into prayer prayer ruts, you might say, where we tend to sort of focus on the same things over and over again. It can be useful sometimes to take a psalm like Psalm 145, pray it, and as you're praying it, think about, oh, right, I haven't prayed about God's righteousness for a while. I haven't prayed about His goodness, His awesome deeds. Take this voca- take the vocabulary and fill it up with the content content of of what you have seen in in what God has done, because that's where as these the Psalms were written in in these very general words, so that the people of God could fill them up with the particular content of whatever age they were sung in. I mean, if, if you think about it, some. Some songs are, you know, I'm thinking here particularly in, in, in the contemporary world, you know, some songs are so particular about particular things that they don't, they make, they don't really translate well for generation after generation. But that's where when you think about what, what God does in the Psalms, he, he gives us these songs that have very general content so that we can fill them up with the particulars of our situations. And David reflects on the glory of the kingdom of God and declares his praise to his king. But what is the kingdom of God? I mean, when you think about the kingdom, oftentimes we think in terms of, of, of like, oh, the United States or you know, the Roman Empire. But those oftentimes are, being, are talking about the territory of a kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's not so much a territory. It's about his reign, his rule. The kingdom of God, indeed, could be, you can find the promise of the kingdom back in Genesis. But 
the presence of the kingdom only begins when God takes a people for himself. When God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may worship me. As God called his son out of Egypt and brought him to Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God said to Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's a way in which the kingdom of God begins at Sinai. David reflects on this in verses 8 and 9 when he remembers what God revealed to Moses at Sinai. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is, you might say, the the central affirmation of God's kingdom. And if you think back to when it was said back in Exodus, it was in the context of Israel's rebellion. Israel had sinned at Mount Sinai by making the golden calf and their, their error in worship, their error in, in understanding who God is and what they were called to do results in their, their idolatry, their adultery, all rooted in their failure to worship and love the Lord their God. When we lose sight of who God is, the result is that our worship goes awry. We're all worshipers. We worship something. And so if we're not loving, serving, worshiping God, we're going to love and serve and worship something else. And if we worship the creature rather than the creator, then everything about us gets out of whack. Our loves are misdirected. And so we start to seek satisfaction in things that cannot ultimately satisfy. As Augustine said so well, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But the Lord is gracious and merciful. Israel had rebelled. Israel had made a golden calf. They had done precisely the thing that God had said not to do just a few weeks before. And yet he is gracious and merciful. He did not destroy Israel, but he listened to the voice of Moses. And when he caused his glory to pass by Moses, he declared these words, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The kingdom of God is founded on that statement. Our king is just, but he is also merciful. And his mercy is over all that he has made. And so David sings in verse 10, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. It can be useful in your prayers to to pick a theme. Uh, Psalm 145 has chosen the theme of, of the mighty deeds of God, the glorious splendor of his kingdom, and then weaves that theme throughout the prayer, praising him, magnifying his holy name, and then praying that God's glorious kingdom would indeed be made splendid in us, and that we might make known to future generations God's mighty deeds. That's what David's doing here, weaving together the theme of God's kingdom, which, sure, uh, there's a way in which this, you know, Psalm 145 has a very Israel-centered focus, but he weaves together this theme of God's kingdom with the theme of God's universal dominion. And if you think about it, what is the point of an Israel-centered focus? Well, it's that God's purpose with Israel is that in the seed of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. So, anytime you see what's happening with the apostles in Acts 1 is they've, they've lost sight 
temporarily of this universal focus, and they're getting so focused on Israel that they're sort of like, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is like, that, that's the wrong question right now. The whole point of what I've just done is actually to bring the larger picture into view. You'll be my witnesses, yes, starting in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, restoring Israel, as it were, but then also to the end of the earth, because my purpose is that, indeed, my kingdom would extend to all the ends of the earth. Because the kingdom of God is not primarily a territorial designation. The United States is a territorial entity. But the kingdom of God is not a territory. Rather, it refers to the reign and rule of God. David confesses that the kingdom of, of the Lord, the kingdom of Yahweh, is an everlasting kingdom. Israel was where the kingdom of God began to sh take shape. As we've gone through the, the book of Joshua in the evening service, we've seen how Joshua's entrance into the promised land signaled the coming of the kingdom. And now as we're going through the book of Judges, and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Judges signaled that the, the kingdom of God was coming as God restored his people because he is merciful and gracious to a people that really don't deserve it. But the Old Testament's very clear. That the, that the kingdom of God is not restricted to Israel. Indeed, David's son, Solomon, understood this very well. In Second Chronicles 6, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon spoke of the, the establishment of the kingdom. He said that the Lord has fulfilled with his hand what he spoke with his mouth in establishing the son of David to sit on David's throne and in establishing a house for God's name in Jerusalem. There's a way in which the promises to Abraham have come together in Solomon, that the, the land is a place where, where God meets with his people focused now in the temple. The promise of the seed has been focused upon now Solomon, the son of David. But Solomon understands that all of this is a picture. He sees that while the kingdom has come, he sits on his father's throne, he is still praying for the kingdom to come. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, Solomon prays, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way. And so Solomon prays, thy kingdom come. Now, if you think about the petitions of Solomon's prayer, Solomon prays, Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant, notice the singular there, offers toward this place. Why does Solomon pray in the singular? Because his first petition is, is not that God will hear his servants, plural, but his servant, singular, the son of David. Oh God, hear the son of David when he prays. This is important for us too, because the prayers of the son of David, the, the prayers of the anointed king, well, in Hebrew the word for anointed is Mashiach, which is translated into Greek as the Christ. Hear the prayers of your Christ. Hear the prayers of your anointed king, your Messiah, when he prays. Israel had failed to live the, out the kingdom of God. God had called David to succeed where Israel failed. And, of course, if you know the story of Israel's kings, they 
They don't do any better than Israel. And so a thousand years later, John the Baptist declares, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing that everything promised to Israel in the Old Testament is coming to pass. The universal reign of the Lord is at hand. And the coming of the kingdom is seen in its full light as the coming of God himself as king when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what happens when Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst because the king himself has come. And now God has raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This is no longer the earthly shadow where the son of David sits on the throne in Jerusalem. Now the son of David is sitting at the right hand of the, of the father at the, in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so what that means is that God hears Jesus when Jesus prays on your behalf. Now this is no excuse for our lousy practice of prayer, but it is a great comfort that we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Righteous. But it also means that, that our prayers should be oriented towards the temple in the, in the same way that when Solomon says, hear the prayers of your servants when they pray toward this place, our prayers should be oriented towards the temple. It's just the temple is no longer on earth. The temple is at the right hand of the Father. And so our prayers are oriented towards the heavenly temple, towards the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Because in the same way that Israel's prayers were centered through the anointed one who sat at the, at the right hand of God on earth, you might say. That's a pretty far ways away. Now, the, he sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. And in that light, in the light of the King who has come, notice how Psalm 145 finishes. David has declared that the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. But in light of, of who Jesus is, in light of the, the fact that Jesus is the one who brings this glorious and everlasting kingdom, think of the ministry of Jesus as you hear Psalm 145, 14 and following. The Lord upholds all who are falling. The Lord raises up all who are bowed down. In his own life and ministry, as Jesus healed the sick, and ever since, as he continues to be, draw near to the one who is afflicted, the, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because you are the one who provides all things that we need for life and godliness. You open your hand. God is not a close-fisted father. He opens his hand to give to those who, who cry out to him. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And what is more, the Lord is near to all who call on him. He is holy, but his holiness is, does not lead him to withdraw from us his holiness impels him to draw near to us because he wants a people for himself and so he sent his son that those who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. 
So the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. As Jesus said, those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You will not draw near to Jesus through lies. You can only come to Jesus through the truth of who He is and what He has done. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. As Jesus Himself said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but the the wicked He will destroy. Jesus said, Depart from Me, I never knew you, to those who claim to work wonders in His name, but who did not know Him. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. This is what should be the content of our petition, Thy kingdom come. As we pray that God's kingdom would come. I mean, this is where I would I would encourage you as as you as you go through your prayer list as you as you think about those whom you're praying for, make sure that Thy kingdom come is a theme that runs through your prayers for one another. Because if we're just praying for oh I want this to happen, well, instead. I want your kingdom to come in this situation. I want your kingdom to come in all of the... Because how many of us actually know what would be best for God's kingdom? Well, one of us does, and he's the king, Jesus. Do we trust him? Do we trust him to, to, to know what is best? That his kingdom, his kingdom will come when our prayers are oriented towards the coming of His kingdom, then we begin to see better and more clearly what He is doing even in the midst of all of these confusing events. And I'm not saying we'll ever understand the details. There are so many details in the lives of, of, of the people of God that we, we, we puzzle our heads at and we, never may, we, may, we may never understand why did that happen. That's, that's something that in glory, maybe, we'll know. And I even say then, maybe, because it's entirely possible that in glory we'll be like, hmm, I really don't need to know. <laughs> I can see Jesus, and now seeing him, I see that all of this led me here. Because what God is doing in the midst of all these things is making us like his son. This is, this is what Paul says in Philippians 3 when, when he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And that's what Paul even sees, the, the fellowship of his sufferings, as being and the afflictions that Paul endured. He recognizes, this is what God is doing to conform me to the likeness of Jesus, that I might be like him in his sufferings, that I might also be like him in his resurrection glory. Because indeed, Christ is risen. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you have raised up your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead, that you have seated him in glory at your right hand, and that you have poured out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might no more be slaves to sin and death, but that we might be your own children, fellow heirs with Jesus. Thank you, Father. Have mercy upon us, that your kingdom might come, that we might be more and more 
submitted to you that you might preserve and increase your church, that you might destroy the works of the devil, that you might destroy every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.